Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and our look at the Lord's Prayer with the introduction and the first and second petitions. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, as I seems like I've said a lot on this series, we have got a lot of ground to cover today, and so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Last week, we dug into the Lord's Prayer, kind of set that up, got our broad overview, kind of the bird's eye view map, if you will, of the Lord's Prayer. But we want to go a little deeper into each of these petitions and, of course, the introduction and conclusion a little bit as well. And so let's go ahead and get going here with the introduction. I'll go ahead and read that from the small catechism, and then Pastor Bestel will give us our catechesis lesson, which is essentially the large catechism explained and taught there for us. So this is the introduction to the Lord's Prayer from Luther's small catechism. Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe he is our true Father and we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away there. And I'm just going to give my point away here real quick, too, that I love these words, true father and true children. That's always brought me a lot of comfort. But go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson here on the introduction. Okay, happy to, Sean. Uh, as we hinted at in our overview of the Lord's Prayer last week, and, and if the folks remember sort of that visual aid that I like to use, the three columns, the one on the left, the Ten Commandments, the one in the middle, the Creed, the one on the right, the Lord's Prayer, and the arrows from each line of the Lord's Prayer pointing all the way over to the lines of the Ten Commandments, uh, and then that's all, in a sense, held together by the Apostles' Creed, which holds together that tension between God's holiness and our unholiness, and it's calmed by the creed's promise that we have a merciful God who loves us, who created us, redeemed us, and is now sanctifying us. And so this introduction reminds us, based on all of that overview, it does remind us of the first commandment, but beyond that shows that the God of the first commandment is one that we can not only fear, but also love and trust. And that's perhaps a point that, like you hinted at with this phrase, true father and true children, those are phrases that talk about the idea of being able to love and trust this God of ours. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and our father had told us not to play out in the front yard by the garage window because he didn't want us breaking the window. And of course, we thought that uh, we were good enough at throwing 
the ball back and forth that there's no way we would ever break the window. Well, it didn't take long and, and we had broken the window. And just that visual for people is a good reminder of sort of the relationship between these three chief parts that we've discussed. Because when you think of breaking that window, and if you think of, you know, watching the glass fall to the ground in slow motion and you're going, oh, no, all you can think of is the Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments, that first commandment saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And there is reason to fear this holy God because of our unholiness. And then when you realize there's nothing that I can do to hide this reality, but I must go to the one who's in authority, the one who laid this holy will before me, uh, then you sort of go slinking into the house to admit what you have done. And there you might see, you know, maybe listeners are thinking of their own stories of breaking their own windows. And what happens when you go into the house? There you see sitting in the chair, the father. Right. And it's still sort of an intimidation factor and uh, maybe not quite as intimidating as the Ten Commandments, but there's still sort of a reality of being somewhat distant and set apart from this almighty one who sits in his recliner or his chair at the table or whatever. And you know that to approach that is a very intimidating thing. But then when you approach that chair and when you admit what you have done and he loves and forgives you, there is where you know him genuinely as father. There is where that intimate, personal touch, that tangible reality, right? To, to refer to as God, to refer to as almighty, those sort of still put a distance between you and God. But to be able to claim that he is your true father is a tangible closeness that a child has with a father. So just as we speak of the comfort of the incarnate Christ now being among us in the flesh, the comfort of having the Holy Spirit come into our hearts by God's grace, we also have this joy and comfort of having this tangible relationship with the loving Father, and not just, if you will, an intangible or distant worship of the God Almighty. So it's a very comforting opening phrase and opening line here for that little child. And so because we have this loving, forgiving, compassionate, patient God, we can be confident in appealing to him. So think about it with another illustration. You think of that little toddler that just that little child, two, three years old, who uh, looks up, 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 follows sort of the outline of the individual, up, 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 and sees this tall individual standing above him, maybe a tall stranger staring down at him, and he's deeply intimidated by that individual. But once that toddler knows the intimidating character is trustworthy and kind and patient, perhaps it's an uncle that the toddler has never met before, or maybe it's a new pastor that the toddler gets to know. That toddler will be bold, confident, even assertive with him. And this is what God is inviting us to understand in prayer, that yes, he may be the Lord of heaven and earth, but he, sort of like that really tall man that we might look up, 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 and sort of look intimidatingly uh, or look at him in somewhat of intimidation. Nevertheless, he lifts us up and puts us at eye level with him. And if you will, turns his head and says, okay, now whisper into my ear so that we can speak to him as we are 
quote unquote, comfortable doing because he has made us comfortable doing it. He has given us the right and the permission to do it. And so just like that formerly strange or, you know, maybe an uncle the toddler had never met or maybe the new pastor, just like that pastor saying to the toddler, now tell me, what can I do for you? Or that uncle who first meets the toddler, okay, do you want a cookie or something, you know, whatever the question is, and then turning the ear to the toddler so the toddler knows that he has permission to speak. So too, God invites and draws out of us the reason to pray and then turns his ear to hear our prayer. So what a beautiful opening line that Luther rightly hits on in his meeting in saying that God tenderly invites us. And again, what does he invite us to do and to believe? That he is our true father and that we are his true children. Not just an uncle and not even just a pastor, but our true father. This is an an amazing reality. Imagine that. True children of God. St. John writes in his gospel, to all who believed in Christ's name, he gave them the right to become children of God, born not of the will of man or of the flesh, but born of God. Uh, And then that same St. John rejoices in his epistle when he says, what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We're called children. We are his true children. It's hard to imagine that, but it's true. Uh, So that John continues in his epistle and he says, beloved, we are God's children now. This is baptismal identity language. We'll see it when we get to the fourth chief part of the catechism, but it also is specifically adoption language that we who formerly had no father now tangibly and intimately have this dear heavenly father. In fact, we have God Almighty and nonetheless than God Almighty to be our dear father. And so this is a great image it's a great image, by the way, of baptism to help, uh, you know, what I sort of refer to as, lovingly refer to as the uh, recovering American evangelical, to help him understand baptism as God's work and not ours. God adopts us in baptism. And again, we'll get to this in the fourth chief part. But God adopts us in baptism, calls us his own true dear children, that as St. Paul says in Galatians 4, The Holy Spirit then, as God's gift to us, comes into our heart and teaches us to pray, and notice the language there, Abba, Father. And if anyone has ever asked the pastor, all right, well, what does that mean, Abba? Basically, the best way to translate it in the English might be even the very term of endearment, Daddy, a very intimate term for Father, not a distant God Almighty, but that loving, gentle Father to which we can appeal with every confidence, or in terms that we recognize in this episode and in the prayer that Jesus has taught us, our Father who art in heaven. But then we also have to admit that John does say this in his epistle. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now think about that. The world does not know the Father in heaven. It may think it does, but it wants to know the Father apart from Christ. And Jesus says, no one comes into the Father but by me. And so the world's gods are certainly not the one true God in heaven who has promised us that he is the true father of his true dear children, the church. In other words, to pray our father, 
is a right that is exclusive to the church. The prayer certainly is known by the whole world, believers and unbelievers alike, and to be honest, even unbelievers are those who are sort of uh, doing whatever they need to do in the urgency of a situation. They say, well, I'm going to go through all of my different lucky charms and all of my different you know, rabbit's foots and, and everything I can think of in order to help me in this situation. Um, they might think that they're using the Lord's Prayer, but they don't actually have the right to appeal to him as our Father in heaven. And so that's a tough one to hear, but to say it as clearly as can be said, only those who believe in Christ Jesus are heard in this prayer. We cannot say that all roads lead to God. We do not all appeal to the Father in our own various ways. And so only through Christ Jesus, this prayer may be said. It does not belong to the whole world. It belongs to the church. But joy of all joys, it belongs to the church, and it's for the church to know that we are his true children, just as much as an adopted child is a true child of the family. Yes, we might not be the begotten of God, begotten from his own DNA, like Jesus we refer to as the only begotten, and yet to be the adopted is still to be, as Jesus says, brothers of him and therefore sons of God. And so what comfort, joy, and privilege is ours to say these words. We should never, ever, ever tire of saying them. We should never think the Lord's Prayer is too simple. By his own invitation, we may call on him with all boldness and confidence. Now think about those two words for a minute, because those words pop up in Luther's meaning too. They're not the same thing, actually. Boldness and confidence are not just repetitious synonyms. Boldness means, I can appeal in a way that may even sound assertive. I can appeal for things that may be considered out of bounds. And when people are bold, it often offends the weak or the easily offended. But God is not weak and he's not easily offended, but he's loving and he's patient. And that means that we can be bold in our prayer and we can ask for things that perhaps may be out of bounds and he'll be loving and patient in redirecting our prayer because he's our true father and we are his true children. And so we can say what's on our mind. We don't have to tiptoe around it. We can assert what we want, what we think we need, and we can know that he will not strike us down or just laugh it off and laugh in our face, even if he does have to gently correct us and again, sort of redefine and refocus our petitions. So consider the illustration of the dad who takes his child to get ice cream and says, okay, well, what would you like? And the child very boldly says, I want all of it, right? Now think about this. If the child did not trust the father or the child was scared of being perhaps chastised, the child would simply say, well, I'll take whatever you want me to have. Right? I mean, he would be very timid about it. He won't say anything that could possibly be misconstrued as less than thankful. He would simply say, I'll take whatever you want me to have. Maybe he's trying to be humble. Maybe he's trying to be gracious. You know, and sometimes children in their love toward their parents say it that way. Nothing wrong with that at all. But you can see the timidity factor rather than the boldness that says, I'll take all of it. Maybe knowing full well that that's a prayer that is going to be in a petition and a request that's going to be refined, but it shows sort of that joyful exuberance of the child to say, hey, if you're going to offer it, I'm going to take all of it. 
And then the father comes back to that child and says, okay, well, let me gently correct you. I know what's better for you. I know what you can handle. Let's just choose one scoop of one flavor or one scoop of two different flavors, whatever he knows is best for the child. So because he responds gently and because he loves the child, we can be confident. So not only bold, not only in all boldness, as Luther says in the meaning, but also with all confidence. So we can be confident in coming to him. There's no need to cower. Think of the prodigal son in the, in the parable of Jesus who had no confidence that his father would welcome him home and that his father would receive him back. And so instead, he wanted a plea deal of sorts, and he thought, maybe I can swing some sort of a plea deal to come back as my father's servant. But the father loved him and received him gently and forgivingly and gladly and said, I know what's better for you. You are my son. And he received him back with all joy. Now that this first line, this introduction, teaches us that we can rejoice in the God of the first commandment, the God of the Apostles' Creed, right? God Almighty. We can love and trust his holy will. The subsequent lines then of the first half of the Lord's Prayer teach us to rejoice in the first table of the commandments. Thus, the three subsequent petitions are the thy petitions, and they remind us of the second commandment, the third commandment, and then sort of as we talked about that hinge commandment, the fourth commandment. Whereas then when you get to the lower petitions of the Lord's Prayer, it spends time focusing us on the, if you will, the second table of the commandments and the needs that are ours according to daily bread, according to life with our neighbor, and those types of requests and those petitions. And that's a good setup then to get us into the first petition here, which of course is hallowed be thy name. And we know hallowed, we talked about especially last week, and I think Christians generally understand that word to mean holy is thy name, right? And you'll talk some more about that here. But let's go ahead and read the first petition then and its meaning from Luther's small catechism. And then you'll go ahead and give us our teaching on that. So hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity And we, as the children of God, also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. All right, Pastor Bestel, that's our first petition there. And again, the strong emphasis on being the children of God and coming to him as Father connects us in, as you just explained and set up for us, into this first petition. So go ahead and give us the teaching here on the first petition. Okay, so notice that the appeal of the first petition is to the Word of God and to its divine truth, and to lives lived according to that Word. And so in some ways, somebody might say, well, this sort of sounds as if it's an appeal to the third commandment, our love of God's Word. But let's recall that Luther said the second commandment when we study the second commandment, he says the second commandment is most transgressed with false doctrine, right? Not properly calling upon God's name. When we think of that second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. That commandment is most transgressed, Luther says, 
when we don't call upon the name of the Lord because of false doctrine and false teaching, which then leads to unholy lives grounded in falsehoods. So here we see the appeal to sound doctrine and holy lives. And interestingly, in this meaning, we see Luther twice pray in the meaning. I don't think he does that in any of the other meanings. But right in the meaning, he takes a, a moment and he pauses and he literally prays and writes out the prayer right in the meaning of this petition as a reminder that the second commandment is kept by calling upon the name of the Lord. In fact, in the large catechism, Luther says, so you see in this petition, we pray for exactly what God demands in the second commandment. That's right in paragraph 45 of the large catechism's explanation. And so you can see that Luther sees very clearly the relationship between this first petition, hallowed be thy name, and the relation between that and the second commandment. So that explanation makes it quite simple to understand what this petition is all about. To be hallowed, and you and you rightly said this, Sean, that to be hallowed is to be holy and sacred. But interestingly, as an adjective, see, sometimes adjectives have, if you will, an active sense to them and sometimes sort of a passive reality, right? You can have the adjective of one who is loved, ed at the end, loved, and that's a passive reality. And so a name that is to be hallowed also has sort of a passive connotation as that which is revered by others. So the word choice shows both elements of Luther's meaning. Certainly, the name is holy in and of itself. Christ could have just taught us to pray, holy is thy name, but he didn't say that. He teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, that it may be holy, that it may be revered and kept holy by us through right doctrine and lives lived according to that right doctrine. And so in the same way as we spoke of God's name in the second commandment, we speak of it here, holy in itself, but as he graciously applies it to us in baptism, and as he clothes us in his name in baptism, we ask that he would keep us in pure doctrine and holy living within our baptismal lives, that we call upon his name all our days. And there's that second commandment again. And thus Luther gives three ways in his explanation how we harm God's name. And these ways certainly come up, very practically speaking, in our daily lives all too often. The first is false doctrine and misleading teaching. Think very sadly of all of those teachers out there, all of those pastors who want to point people away from Christ to things like 10 steps to a better you or your best life now, or simply sermon series after sermon series about you rather than the lectionary always pointing us to Christ. You know, that's always that's always something for us as pastors to be careful of. Nothing wrong with preaching a sermon series every now and then, but if we just keep doing sermon series after sermon series after sermon series, we tend to make sermon series that we think are going to apply to people's daily lives in ways we think they apply. And pretty soon all of the sermons become about the person and about the hearer rather than about the Christ. And we have to be very careful about that. Because right doctrine points us to Christ Jesus. It does not point us to our own righteousness, our own ability to self-improve, things of that nature. So that's the first way that we harm God's name is false doctrine and misleading teaching, which sadly comes to us from our pastors, from our leaders. But then two, bad doctrine from them leads to faith poorly confessed in daily life. So Luther even says, 
God's name is profaned by an openly wicked life and works when those who are called Christians and God's people are adulterers, drunkards, misers, enviers, and slanderers. Now, how unholy then, think about this, is the antinomian claim that all that matters is that we just keep telling people, don't worry, there's forgiveness, 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 without ever teaching them how to live lives that revere and hallow God's name, as if they can just go on in lives steeped in sin, copying everything the world does because forgiveness or because Jesus. But that doesn't teach them this petition at all. And so it literally harms God's name is that false doctrine, point number one, and then that life lived instead of in holy living, it's lived in unholy living, then that certainly all harms God's reputation because people look at the church and they look at Christians and they say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, if that's what it means to worship your God, then I have no use for your God. And so it literally harms God's reputation when non-Christians see us living lives or teaching doctrine in a way that does not hallow God's name. Uh, Luther says again in his large catechism, he says, quote, it is a shame and disgrace for a flesh and blood father to have a bad, perverse child that opposes him in words and deeds. Well, if that's true of a flesh and blood father on earth, and we've already said in the introduction that God now is tangibly our true father and we are his true children, then any harm of reputation we bring upon our earthly father when we act against him is certainly also going to be the same harm of reputation that we bring upon our Heavenly Father when we live lives that are not in accord with his doctrine and lives that then harm his reputation. All right, well, that's a good place to go ahead and take a break here. On the other side of the break, we will pick up this question. We've been talking about there how we harm God's name, and absolutely, the false doctrine and false teaching out there is a great harm to God's name. And as we keep it holy then, how do we keep it holy? Uh, how does the first petition direct us in positively praying this so that it may be lived out in our lives? And that's what we'll talk about on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, going through this series, The Catechized Life, and continuing to look today into the Lord's Prayer. We've covered the introduction and begun the first petition here, and we're going to get into the second petition here as well in this second segment here, but still more to say on the first petition here. And as we set up just before break, we talked about in the first segment how the 
kind of negative side, if you will, of the first petition, much like we see reflected in the commandments as we went through that, how we transgress the commandments and so forth. Also, likewise, we don't keep the first petition. We don't rightly pray it when we have false doctrine and false teaching and even false living fits in there, right? But how then do we positively keep this? How, how are we rightly praying, I guess I should say, that God's name be kept holy among us? Go ahead, Pastor Bessel, with that. All right. So we, uh, we rightly remember, as you hinted at the uh, intro there, Sean, that uh, this is about how we rightly pray. This, after all, is the Lord's Prayer. And so we could spend a lot of time talking about our daily life and how our daily life is to emulate these things. But in a sense, the daily life practice of these things outside of prayer, the daily life conduct and the confession of our conduct is something that you might discuss more perhaps in the commandments themselves or in the table of duties as we get to those. But in prayer, how do we then hallow God's name? Uh, and that's an interesting question because everyone just sort of assumes, I think, that you just are always hallowing God's name whenever you pray. And yet Luther uh, doesn't necessarily take it in that direction, that uh, he says, no, there's actually a certain type of petition, a certain praying, a certain appealing to God's name that he wants. He wants us to depend upon his name in all of these situations, just as, again, that sort of hints to the second commandment. But thinking of that second commandment's meaning, when he says, call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks, we certainly can think about that generically. But I'd like the listener to think to this somewhat extended quote that I've got for you out of the large catechism, because it really speaks to a part of the prayer life that I tend to think might come across as sounding, quote unquote, politically incorrect. Uh, to use that term a little bit loosely. Listen to what Luther says here from the large catechism. He says, because we see how full the world is of sects and false teachers who all wear the holy name as a cover and sham for their doctrines of devils, we should by all means pray without ceasing and cry out and call upon God against all people who preach and believe falsely. We should pray against whatever opposes and persecutes our gospel and pure doctrines and would suppress it, as do the bishops, tyrants, enthusiasts, and such. There ends Luther's quote. But now think about what he has just said there and divide it into two parts. First, that we should, quote, cry out and call upon God against all sects and false teachers. Honestly, we need to do a better job of this as Lutherans who have pure doctrine, we've fallen into this notion that we're sort of one of 31 flavors of Christianity. And if anyone else is teaching a different flavor, well, oh, well, we've got our favorite. Ours happens to be, you know, whatever, chocolate chip mint. And uh, they all have their own other flavors. And all, you know, as the saying goes, all roads lead to heaven, supposedly. So, but that's not the case at all. This is the problem, uh, honestly, with the term denomination, which we've grown so very fond of using, is that the word denomination is certainly borrowed from financial language. And in financial language, the different denominations of currency, a dime, a quarter, a nickel, a dollar, a $20 bill, whatever the different denominations are, all have inherent value. Even if not of the same value, they all have inherent 
value, and so all are to be cherished. And when you pass that idea off into the conversations about what is right doctrine, it actually makes it very difficult for us to point out the fact that, no, not all denominations have inherent pure doctrine value. And so we have to do a better job, I think, as pastors of teaching people that we ought never think that heterodox teachings carry some inherent and useful value, almost as if they should be upheld and even possibly employed at times. That's not so. Secondly, Luther says here, quote, we should pray against whatever opposes and persecutes our gospel and pure doctrines and would suppress it, as do the bishops, tyrants, enthusiasts, and such. Now, again, these are strong words, and yet they are words by which Luther says we would rightly then employ the first petition. This is what Jesus himself is teaching us to pray. Though we're not supposed to take matters into our own hands and acting out against enemies of the church, right? It's not ours to say, okay, I'm opposed to, uh, to the Roman papacy, and therefore I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's never what Jesus preaches and teaches. And yet, at the same time, uh, as Luther says here, basically the, the implicit question is, why not pray against those who would harm the gospel? Why not pray against, for example, as Luther uses the term tyrants, why not pray against an overbearing government? Why do we always pray that God, quote, bless our president, Congress, courts? And there's, that's certainly a good prayer, and we're right to pray for them, as the scriptures say in First Timothy and in Romans, uh, that we are right to pray for them. But we are also to pray, as Luther says, that all that would harm the gospel would be in a sense, thrown down from its throne. So why not pray that God would thwart all worldly plans that disobey his holy will? I think that would be a very salutary prayer. In fact, in our congregation here where I serve, we include that in the petition. Every Sunday, we include a petition for our nation, for the government of our nation, for the government of our state. And yet, as part of that petition, asking God to bless them, we also pray that God would thwart any plan that would not honor his holy will, whether that be a plan that comes from the state, from the federal government, from the church itself. Anything that opposes his good and holy will, we should pray against, Luther says. Uh, what about those who, uh, not just praying against tyranny or quote-unquote government, but what about, as Luther says, enthusiasts who disregard the sacraments? Right? That's what Luther meant by the term enthusiast, are the church bodies out there that teach that we have no need for the sacraments, that the Holy Spirit just fills our heart just by immediately indwelling himself in us. And so what about praying against the enthusiast teachers, not the people in the pews, but the enthusiast teachers who teach people to disregard the sacraments, to ignore their baptism and the gift of the Holy Supper in favor of feeling the Spirit or being moved by some band music or someone's personal testimony. That's not how Jesus ever promised that his Holy Spirit would work. And so we ought pray against false teachers, and we ought pray that God would disarm those false teachers and remove them from positions of influence. Some people would say, oh, that's terribly unloving. No, actually, it is unloving to teach people to disregard God's precious sacraments. That's unloving. And so we Lutherans have the full treasure 
of Christ's pure doctrine, we should not be borrowing from enthusiasts, but should be openly denouncing all things that borrow from heterodoxy. Notice I didn't say we should be openly denouncing people or the people in the pews or our fellow, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, family members, friends who are in the pews of these churches. But for their own benefit, we should be denouncing and confessing against false teaching, and we should be praying to God that he would disarm false teachers and not give them any success. And it's always sad to hear when Lutherans start to borrow from the enthusiasts as if we don't have the full treasure of pure doctrine in Christ. Uh, I heard a pastor recently describe his congregational life as, quote-unquote, crushing it for Jesus. I thought, come on, give me a break. Jesus has crushed the enemy. Genesis chapter 3, right? We've talked about that. He has crushed the enemy. He doesn't need you to do that, and he doesn't delight in you crushing anything. He delights in you hallowing his name and trusting it and treating it as sacred and holy and good and openly then denouncing all things that go against his name. That's what this petition is all about, is putting all of our hopes, all of our confidence in the name of Christ and denouncing anything and everything and praying against anything and everything that would oppose Christ and the way that he has established to care for and guide his church. And we need leaders in our own church body. We need leaders in our own congregations to lead in such a holy petition to revere God's name and doctrine. And as Luther explains it to us, and as Christ himself gave us to pray this, this is our confession. This is right out of the large catechism. And so we would do really well here in the 21st century to realize just how prominent a feature this was in the prayer life of the 16th century Lutheran Church, as it totally and utterly depended upon God to safeguard the Church against the tyranny of the Roman papacy, of the Roman Empire, and lo and behold, when all of the statistics and probabilities would say there's no way that Luther, there's no way that the Reformers would ever stand a chance against the Roman papacy and against the Holy Roman Empire, here's the Lutheran doctrine 500 years later, shining brightly as the pure doctrine of Christ handed down from generation to generation. And so we should take that and run with it and say, yes, we should always appeal to God to defend his name and to defend his cause as only he can do. This is an excellent point that you make here, I think. And we may not be able to cover all of the second petition, but I do want to dwell here for just a second, because I think this is important, especially as I think about, you know, tomorrow I follow the one-year lectionary in my dual parish here. So tomorrow is the eighth Sunday after Trinity. And of course, when you follow the one-year lectionary, you get the same set of readings every single year. And so I feel this every year coming, and I can already feel it coming tomorrow. You have the Old Testament reading on the eighth Sunday of Trinity, which is Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And on it goes with that, right? And then the second reading is from Acts chapter 20, where Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
And then Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I mean, the very clear theme driving all of those readings on the eighth Sunday of Trinity is that there is false teaching out there and that this does not hollow God's name. And a pastor is to preach and teach on this and to be specific about pointing out where there is false teaching so that the flock may be warned so that we can be careful in paying attention to ourselves, but also to the flock that has been entrusted to us, as Acts 20 says, right? But inevitably, it comes up every year, right? Someone will say, oh, so you think Lutherans are going to be the only ones in heaven. You're just so judgmental, right? And I mean, sometimes even those sorts of things are said kind of behind a pastor's back or something. You know, the pastor just wants to talk bad about everybody else. And, you know, and it's certainly not all the members and so forth. There's a lot of wonderful members who are very appreciative for that teaching from God's word. It's right there for us and faithful teaching on it. But you always feel this tension, and you talked about that a little bit there, Pastor Bestel, of, you know, this is a tough tension for us. We don't want to denounce people, but yet we have to speak the truth. We have to confess the very nature of this show, right? And so talk just a little bit, if you will, a little more about this. How do we confess the truth in love? How do we teach from Scripture that this is how we hallow God's name? I I sometimes want to tell my people, you know, or others who get a little ruffled when we start to talk about these things and warn them about the teachings that they're hearing from other church bodies and things of that nature that have heterodox confessions. And when we're worried about even it happening within our own church body, that we're not actually being judgmental in a negative sense where we're just trying to assert that we're right and they're wrong and or anything of that nature. It's not a competition, but we're really, we're trying to hollow God's name. We're trying to live out this prayer. And really, and I think in a lot of ways, God is answering that prayer when he does that through us as his pastors and his laity that faithfully confess as well as hopefully listeners to a show like this do. Do you have any further comments on that, Pastor Bessel? Sure. You just mentioned that you say, you know, we're trying to hallow God's name. We're trying to live out this prayer. And I think that a lot of our people would say, well, but so is everybody else in the other churches. They're trying to hallow God's name too, and they're just doing it in their own way. And that's why it has to come back to right doctrine, right? It has to come back to Christ's doctrine, because good intentions do not mean that you are following truth. Uh, You can be very well-intended and still be deceived. Think of how often in the epistles, almost every single epistle warns the Christian to be very careful about being led away by false teaching. Well, where does the false teaching come from? It doesn't just fall out of the clouds. It comes from teachers, teachers who are well-intended, but as the scriptures even imply in one place, that they deceive themselves and those who hear them, right? The teachers can be so well-intended, but we're not judging things based on good intentions, but rather we simply have to point to the Word of God. We have to point to Christ's name and say, this is Christ's pure doctrine. And therefore, those who have a problem with you or me pointing to Christ's doctrine, they don't actually have a problem with you or me. They have a problem with Christ. Christ is the one who says, no one comes unto the Father but by me. Uh, Now, you mentioned that you are in the one-year series. We're in the three-year series. That's something that our church body could probably do a little better at, too, is trying to get us all on the same page with that. Uh, We're in the three-year series here, and a few weeks back, We had the reading in which Jesus could do no miracles in his hometown because they didn't 
believe uh, on his name. And I pointed out to the folks that even there in the Greek, it's not so much that he was incapable of it as if they had found his kryptonite and rendered him uh, weak and useless, but rather that he is not going to bless those with his divine acts and his divine sacraments. He is not going to bless those who reject his word regarding his divine acts and his divine mercy. He is not Christ on the hearer's terms. He is Christ on his own terms. And as such, then, he gets to determine what is his doctrine, what is the life of his church. And therefore, no matter how well-intended the teachers are, any teacher can be a false teacher. I can be a false teacher. You can be a false teacher. If we get off track, and instead of people calling us to repentance for getting off track, they allow us to become um, uh, sort of um, bold in our, in our false assertions, and pastors don't call each other to account, or good faithful congregations like the Bereans aren't in place calling pastors to an account. By the idea of never being willing to judge the doctrine, we can never actually make sure that we are defending pure doctrine and therefore never hallowing or revering God's name and doctrine. So, yeah, this is a, it's, it's a real difficult one for people because they always think that we're being mean or judgmental against people. But it's not people in the pews. It's against the teachings. It's against the formal doctrines and against, as Jesus himself says, the false shepherds who advocate those formal doctrines. So it's not the people in the pew, but we should pray that God does not give success to false teaching and therefore to the false teachers who promote the false teaching. Uh, so this, this is one that we should really uh, wrestle with as Christians a little bit more and understand that this is a genuine part of what it means that we pray that God's name would be revered among us. Excellent point. Yeah, I just think that deserves a little further thought. And maybe just even on that point too, you know, as I always try to encourage people to think more catechetically, maybe, maybe the next time you encounter that, and probably listeners of a show like this probably appreciate that anyway. But as we think catechetically, maybe maybe just go to your pastor and say, you know, thank you for keeping the first petition, for honoring and hallowing God's name, that that petition would be carried out in your life. Uh, I know it's uncomfortable, pastor, but thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I bet your pastor would really appreciate that. I know I certainly would. But uh, anyway, just a catechetical thought there for us. All right, we're going to run out of time here, but uh, I think we should at least start the second petition and then we'll get into it more next episode here. But well, and this too, I think, connects very well. And so a, a good progression here that as we talk about thy kingdom come in the second petition, again, that's connected with, as Pastor Besto lead us in here, with God's kingdom being lived out and all connected with his name being hallowed and how we live. So anyway, let me just go ahead and read the second petition here from Luther's small catechism with explanation. Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our heavenly father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace, we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us how is God's kingdom come among us? If the uh, Lutheran gets a little bit uncomfortable with the previous petition, then what about this one? 
right? Think about this. Notice that Luther's meaning admits that God's kingdom does not need us. We need it, and we pray that it come among us also. This is a great reminder for the life of the church and what the life of the church is all about. Folks, if your pastor ever tells you that Jesus needs you, call the pastor to repentance. Christ himself says that even the stones would confess his name if the people did not. Right? He, he simply does not need us. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are showing our utter dependence upon his word, upon his promises, upon his sacred acts and his sacred gifts. This is the life of the church. The, the kingdom of God does not need you in the sense of saying, oh no, it won't grow or succeed if I don't spend my, every waking hour working as hard as I can to do some sort of church building or kingdom building outreach. The life of the church isn't foremost about what you are doing for Jesus. Rather, the life of the church is about what Jesus is doing for you. Think of those catchy phrases that you hear all the time, like, don't go to church, be the church. That's actually just pietism. You should go to church because you are the church. And as God calls the church to gather together around his altar, he doesn't do it so that the church can somehow build his kingdom for him, but rather he calls us together around his altar so that the church can be served as dear children of their true father, so that the church can be cared for as the heavenly father loves his true children. And so it is faithful to pray that we simply be beneficiaries of the gospel. In the large catechism, Luther even defines the kingdom of God by rehashing the second and third articles of the creed, none of which is about what you are doing for God, right? The second creed is all about our redemption. The third creed is about our sanctification. And in both creeds, as we've already studied, it's about God's work for you, not the other way around. It's about the benefits of the Christ-completed work being applied to you by his Holy Spirit. That's the life of the church. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're not just praying for the end of time, but we're praying that God's kingdom come right to us right now as he has promised through his holy word and his blessed sacraments. Think of those readings in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the apostles two by two, and he tells them to go into the other towns. And he says, when you go into those towns, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and say, nevertheless, the kingdom of heaven has come to this place. It's a present tense reality. And as that kingdom of heaven is a present tense reality, then when we pray, thy kingdom come among us also, we are praying that it come right here and right now, because the life of the church is not found in the voters' assembly or in mission programs, or in the well-intended volunteerism of the people, but rather the life of the church, that divine life of the church that makes it an otherworldly reality, is the divine service, which then, yes, by all means, strengthens us for a life of, quote, faith in you and fervent love for one another. And we'll hit that phrase over and over and over again as we get toward the second half of the catechism. That phrase will come up over and over again as sort of the culminating reality 
of this teaching of the small catechism, is that it all leads to faith in you and fervent love for one another, which is what the life of the Church looks like in daily life. And yet the foundation and the true fountain of the life of the Church is that God brings his kingdom to us and among us in his holy word and sacraments. It's all found in the divine service so that, as Luther says it here, so that by his grace, there's the work of the divine service, we believe his holy word, there's the faith in you, and we godly lives here in time, there's fervent love toward one another. So just to drive home this point, consider what we could achieve if it were up to us to build the kingdom or grow the kingdom. As some pastors like to talk about that, and they end up burdening their hearers with an untenable and unscriptural demand. It's not ours to grow the kingdom, for it grows, as the scriptures say, he knows not how, right? That's the parable in Mark chapter 4, when the, when the seed is sown, and, and uh, the man sows the seed, and he doesn't even know how it grows. Again, the wind blows where it will, and you neither know where it comes from or where it goes, so also with those of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3. But just say, for example, or just say for the argument that you and I as pastors and, dear listener, you and I as Christians should work at growing the kingdom and building the kingdom. What exactly does that look like, and how can we offer building bricks and building blocks and materials that are supposedly better than what Christ himself has offered? That's something, I know we're out of time for this episode, Sean, but that's something that if I could, I'd almost like to ask the listener, do a little bit of homework in just thinking about that. What in the world can I offer to build the kingdom that is better than what God can offer or that God needs me to offer because somehow he hasn't already provided it? Good thought for the next seven days until we get a chance to discuss this in more detail. Absolutely. And I found myself thinking as you were talking there about that example you gave earlier of another pastor you heard of talking about crushing it for Jesus, right? How could we do that? I mean, this is God's kingdom comes even without our prayer. Just such a beautiful thought. Yeah. Just dear listener, you've been giving your homework. So we'll uh, pick up this second petition when we reconvene for Concord next week, continuing to talk about thy kingdom come. And so we look forward to that. And then we'll also get into the third and fourth petitions next week when we reconvene for Concord again. So that's Pastor Mark Bestel continuing our series here on Concord Matters, the Catechized Life. Thank you for your teaching, Pastor Bestel. Thank you for hallowing God's name so well for us today as you have done throughout this series. And we continue to look forward to that going forward. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, Keep confessing, church.